looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello and welcome to the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion and analysis, plus timely and entertaining sports and pop culture topics. And today we're going to be talking about the 49ers 33-19 loss Christmas night against the Baltimore Ravens. We're going to be going over stats, pro football focus ratings, What I said the Niners needed to do to win the game, which obviously did not happen. We're going to be talking Purdy's four-interception game. How well the 49ers actually did move the ball when they weren't turning it over. Five things regarding what this game actually means. We're going to be talking offensive line injuries, roster moves, and previewing this Sunday's game at Washington against the Commanders. In the plus section, we're going to be talking NBA The Detroit Pistons losing an impressive 27 straight games. We'll dive into that, just like we're going to dive into Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon movie review on Netflix. I checked it out. There's some good, but a lot more bad. And we will conclude by making Week 17 NFL picks. But like always, it starts with the Niners, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! So I'm releasing this podcast on Wednesday. I could have done it yesterday, the day after the game, but there was so much craziness going on between talking heads in the media, people on social media, Twitter, about Purdy, how good the Ravens are, the Niners, are they frauds, they can't play against a good defense, etc., etc. Baltimore won the game, you tip your cap, Good game by the Ravens. That defense is legit, but we're going to talk about how the Niners move the ball offensively, but I wanted everything to calm down a little bit. Let's go through the stats. Let's talk about the game with a little bit more of a level head and some logic, which I know is entirely too difficult for people in the media or content creators to do. Let's start off with the stats. Obviously, Niners lose 33-19, two-touchdown game similar to the Bengals game from a little over a month ago, almost two months ago, actually. Brock Purdy, 255 yards, as you know, four interceptions. Sam Darnold came in once Purdy wound up getting another stinger, threw for 81 yards, a touchdown, and an interception. In total, 49er quarterbacks were sacked four times. Lamar Jackson, 252 passing yards, two touchdowns. He was sacked Twice, Christian McCaffrey on the ground, 14 for 103 and a touchdown as a team. Niners, 18 rushes for 121 yards and one touchdown. Lamar Jackson led the way for the Ravens, 7 for 45. He did have that one scramble, that long run of 30 yards. Otherwise, six rushes for 15 yards as a team, 26 for 102 and a touchdown. Receiving, Kittle, 7 for 126. Ayuk, 6 for 113. Debo, 4 for 47. And McCaffrey, 6 for 28. For the Ravens, rookie Zay Flowers, 9 for 72 and a touch. And tight end Isaiah Likely, 3 for 56. The Niners, two sacks on Lamar Jackson. Javon Hargrave had one. Randy Gregory and Chase Young had half a sack each. Pro football focus ratings on offense. Ronnie Bell, 78.8 on three snaps. He was the best offensive player Per football, pro, pro, pro football focus, and it was only on three snaps. That's how you know it wasn't your day. Guard Aaron Banks, 75.4. Brandon Ayuk, 75.2. Trent Williams, 75.2. And George Kittle, 73.2. Three lowest rated offensive players. Uh, fullback Kyle Juszczyk, 48.8. Right tackle Colton McKivitz, 40.5. And right guard Spencer Buford, 36.2. On defense, five highest rated. Defensive tackle Kevin Givens, 72.1. Defensive tackle... T.Y. McGill, 68.3. Nick Bosa, 64.5. Javon Hargrave in his return, 63.4. And defensive end, Randy Gregory, 62.6. The three lowest rated, cornerback Jason Ferret called up from the practice squad, 45.1 on five snaps. Demetrius Flanagan fouls at linebacker, 44.8. And Daryl Luter, 41.7 at corner, four snaps. So... One quick note, this game, in a weird way, statistically, was like the Super Bowl. 
from 10 years ago, San Francisco-Baltimore. In that game, the Niners had a 300-yard passer in Kaepernick, 100-yard rusher in Frank Gore, 200-yard receivers in Michael Crabtree and tight end Vernon Davis, and wind up losing the game. Here, their quarterbacks combined for over 300 yards. McCaffrey at running back goes over 100 yards. Their tight end, George Kittle, goes over 100, and Brandon Ayuk goes over 100, and they still lose to the Ravens. Granted, this one wasn't as close as the Super Bowl, although towards the end, you thought there might be the chance for a Super Bowl-like comeback, which probably would have ended a touchdown short, and we'll get into that momentarily. What did I say last podcast, in case you weren't listening? I said, for not for San Francisco to win, But the formula based on Baltimore's three losses was either win the turnover battle or win the time of possession battle or both. And that is how the Ravens lost their three games. San Francisco lost both. Lost a turnover battle 5-0 and lost a time of possession battle by, I think, two and a half minutes. This is easy. You can't expect to turn the ball over five times. Two in the red zone, granted one was late, that last drive by Sam Darnold, and expect to win any game, but especially a game against a top five, top three defense with a good pass rush and an offense led by a mobile quarterback who could make you pay like we saw him make the Niners do on that 30-yard scramble, and I believe it was the third quarter. If you want to look on the bright side, On the flip side, this is a team, San Francisco, that threw five interceptions and lost by two scores. When you lose the turnover margin, usually by one or two, you may lose by two scores. They lost it, the turnover margin, by five. Five picks, two in the red zone. They lost by 14. Now, it's not as easy as saying if Purdy scores a touchdown on the first drive and doesn't throw a pick in the end zone and Darnold throws a pick in the end zone on their last drive that they win the game or they tie the game. It's not that easy because in between, we don't know how things would have played out. But what I do know is 0-5 turnover differential. They lost by two touchdowns. It could have and should have been a lot worse, but... Let's bring this back to reality for any of you emotionally fragile 49er fans out there that are grasping at straws and saying, well, the 49ers beat themselves. And I've seen this a lot on social media. The Ravens beat the Niners just as much as the Niners beat themselves. Don't be emotionally fragile. The Niners took one on the chin, on the eye, body blows all over. Just take it and move on. They didn't beat themselves. Beating yourself is missing multiple field goals, dropping touchdowns, having fumbles be uncaused, dropping the ball, having the the Ravens recover. All the turnovers were forced. A good number of them were bad luck, but the Ravens forced those turnovers and they capitalized on them. Now, after the Ravens' first drive, the first drive was a punt. The next drive was a safety. The Ravens scored on seven straight possessions. That's not the Niners beating themselves. That's the Ravens causing turnovers and taking advantage of them. Credit the Niners' defense a couple times holding the Ravens to field goals to keep it to a 21-score game versus, you know, 25, and that would have been a four-score game to give the Niners some sliver of hope in the third and fourth quarter. But make no mistake about it, Baltimore won the game, guys. There is no, well, if this and if that and the Niners did. Whatever happened on the field, the Ravens caused to happen. Of the four turn, let's not count the last turnover just regarding this because that was the end of the game and, and the Ravens just ran the clock out afterwards, even though the Niners had three timeouts. Of the the four turnovers previously, the four picks, Baltimore got the ball at their own eight, and that was the interception in the end zone to Kyle Hamilton, returned it to the eight. Then the next three, Baltimore gets the ball at their own 47, at the Niners 20, and at the Niners 21. So short fields. They should at least get field goals out of those three drives, and some, some of those ended in touchdowns. This is a Ravens defense, while very good, and opportunistic at times, had only 11 interceptions going into the game. They had five against the 49ers. 
Let's let's run that back. In their previous 15 games, the Ravens had 11 interceptions as a team. In this game, they had five. Bad luck, the way the ball bounces. And you can look at it and say, well, if the Niners turn the ball over two less times, maybe, you know, it's a three-point loss or a seven-point You could play that game all you want. All we know is what happened on the field and what happened on the field were things that the Ravens caused, although they were unlucky at times. We're going to get into Purdy's four interceptions in a second. You know, looking back at some of the Niner games of this year, you know, when they beat up on Dallas, the Niners won the turnover turnover battle 4-1. to one. one time of possession by over, over 10 minutes. So that was a similar type of game to what they experienced against the Ravens. Although they lost by 14, the Cowboys lost by 32. Against Philadelphia, there were no turnovers by either team. Eagles got worked, lost by 23. That wasn't a ball bouncing the wrong way. That was the Niners working the Eagles up and down the field. And you can say that the Ravens defense really dictated some terms on San Francisco and was maybe the more physical team on Christmas night. I think that's fair. But yes, this to anybody out there that's looking at stuff to, stuff to grasp on and to say, but, 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 but if the Niners don't turn it over five times, maybe three times, maybe this is a different game. If you guys want to hold on to that, that's fine. And other people are saying, well, you know, the 94 season when San Francisco won the Super Bowl, they had a game like this. They lost at home 40 to eight against Philadelphia. And then Steve Young gave a rousing speech and they won all the rest of their games except the last game of the season because they already had home field advantage uh, locked up and they rolled through the playoffs. All right. If you want to say this is akin to the 94 blowout by Philadelphia, sure. By another bird team, you want to draw that comparison? Sure. Sometimes a team plays better, gets some lucky bounces, or in this case, tips, and changes the whole complexion of the game. We keep mentioning the tips and the interceptions. Purdy threw four. As you know, the first was a late throw to Debo Samuel in the end zone. The second was a quick throw to Debo on a wide receiver screen. The Ravens dialed up a cornerback blitz. Corner bats it into the air, and it's intercepted near midfield. The third interception was a throw to Kittle where Purdy was trying to buy time through his across his body a bit. The defender got his arm in there, bats, pops, pops the ball up, tips the ball up, and it's in, intercepted by Kyle Hamilton again. And the fourth was Purdy's arm was hit on a simple check down to McCaffrey. The Ravens get the ball at the Niners' 21. Pro Football Focus credited Brock Purdy with two interception-worthy throws. The first one and the one to Kittle. The quick screen to Debo, where the corner gets a piece of it, and his arm getting hit on the last one. Not really his fault, but they go on his stat line. He threw four. He's got 11 interceptions and 29 touchdowns now on the season. Purdy exited the game with another stinger, but he was cleared to play, did not go back in. Darnold went in. He was not benched. The Niners were down three starting offensive linemen. Sam Darnold came in and he gave him a little bit of a spark. And we're going to get into that. But let's talk about what Purdy said after the game. I mean, he he owned it. This wasn't a, oh, it was bad luck. It was this or that. He completely, you know, keeps saying, I have to look at, I'm looking myself in the mirror saying, who do I want to be? How do I want to bounce back from something like this? And here was one of the quotes that I thought was interesting that we'll expound upon. Quote, when things are in my mind of, all right, you've messed up a couple times. I got to find a way to make a play. That's where I think I have to grow and be willing. Like I said, a bad play happens. Throw the ball away. Punt the ball. The game's still manageable to come back. Those are things I have to get better at and understand. What he's referring to here is the throw to George Kittle that was popped up and inter- batted and intercepted, and that was on a play where Purdy was scrambling, trying to buy time. There was a flag on the play. It was offensive holding. It was or something on the 49ers. He didn't realize that. He was still just trying to make a play, and this goes back to some of the knocks on him when he was in college at Iowa State, trying to do too much on a team that did not have a lot of talent, so he was trying to overcome that. That's not the case with San Francisco, but you can see how, 
how things can snowball. This was the, that was his, he already had two interceptions before this one occurred, and he was trying to make a play, but a punt there isn't all that bad because the, the Ravens weren't doing a whole lot on offense. At the half, Ravens are up 16-12. They had 92 yards of offense. The Niners were playing the Ravens well when they made the Ravens march the field. Now, they, the Ravens wound up doing that in the second half, but up until halftime, a 16-12 game, Ravens weren't wowing me offensively. The wows were coming on defense, three first half intercept interceptions, right? But it wasn't Lamar doing anything, you know, fantastic or the running game. Nothing was being run down the Niners' throat. He, I think Purdy understands, and he's gotten better since the, the Bengal game where he threw that really bad interception along the sideline when the Niners were in the end zone trying to flip it to McCaffrey, or, or I think it might have been Eli Mitchell. He doesn't need to do too much. A punt is not a bad thing, considering the fact that the Niners have a pretty good defense, you know, top 10, top 7 defense, to get stops in a game that was still relatively close at the time. Now, in terms of the interceptions... Players are going to have these games, guys. You know, Montana had a four-interception game. He had multiple three-interception games. Peyton Manning has had multiple four-interception games. Tom Brady has had multiple four-interception games. A game or a couple games does not define someone who someone is for a season or the course of their career. And, of course, the Brock Purdy haters, the Trey Lance fans, the people that weren't believing in Brock are going to say, oh, see, he can't play against a good defense. Meanwhile, he carved up the Cowboys. Uh, see, you know, when, when the lights are brightest, he wilts, he folds. Not really. Things kind of snowballed. That first interception he shouldn't have thrown, but then the next three were tips. Right? And the Kittle one, he probably he shouldn't have thrown across his body. So to me, two legit interceptions and two bad luck. But again, all four go on his ledger. All four he is responsible for. It's going to happen. Let's see how he bounces back the next two games. They're at Washington and they're at home against the Rams. That, that's going to be a tough game last week of the season. And if they don't take the, the commanders seriously, that could be a closer game that people are expecting also. One game. You can throw one pick, four picks. You could score one touchdown, no touchdowns, or seven touchdowns. They don't carry over to the next game. Look how hot the Niners were. It was a six-game winning streak. Did that carry over to the Ravens game? No. One play at a time, one drive at a time, one score at a time, one, one game at a time. Cliche, but it's true. Now let's talk about that last drive. So, so Sam Darnold comes in, leads him down the field. They wind up scoring a touchdown. Get the ball back. They're down 14. They get a pass interference on Brandon Ayuk at the two. First and goal at the Baltimore two with 2.16 to go. They're down by 14 points. I understand Shanahan's thought process here. You want to score before the two-minute warning. You have three timeouts. If you can stop the Ravens and get the ball back, you might be able to have a chance to go down the field and score a, a tying touchdown. Now, first play was an incomplete. It was, I don't even remember if it was play action, but they stacked the line. Nobody was open. Darnold throws it away. Second down was a one-yard run. McCaffrey over the left side. Now you're at the two-minute warning. First off, if, they had, if the Niners had scored a touchdown on the first play, there's still the possibility that if, if the Niners kicked off, if I'm John, Har John Harbaugh, I would have said, no matter where the ball is kicked in the end zone, I want you to take it out. With the chance of bleeding the clock down to the two-minute warning so the Niners have one less timeout. So once that first play wasn't there, that Darnold was an incompletion, I agree with running the ball, and I was surprised that McCaffrey didn't get in. What I don't agree with on third and goal from the one is going shotgun and I keep, I've told my son for years now, if you can get it first and goal with the one or two, sneak the ball four times, you will get in. I know people aren't, no team is like the Eagles with the tush push and, and Jalen Hurts and how much you can squat and all that good stuff. Sneak it in. At that point, you know, don't even worry about the two minute warning. You still have three timeouts. You still have, if the Ravens get a first down, what is that fourth timeout actually going to do for you? Nothing, really. But instead, they throw it on third and one. Darnold gets sacked for 11-yard loss. It's fourth and 12. Uh, fourth and goal from the 12, and he throws an interception. Which, 
in a weird way, is maybe kind of good for the media morons out there and the 49er fans who don't have a clue about anything. Can you imagine if if Sam Darnold gets it, scores there again, and then they get the ball back and he goes down the field and scores to tie the game? There would be, there's people already now saying Brock's not legit. Oh, he, he should, you know, no one's calling for him to be benched, but there's a lot of people questioning him. Can you imagine if Darnold even gets it to a seven-point game? Or more, or more crazy, ties it or wins it. The play Darnold bench Purdy voices, how loud they would be because people are morons and it's all about immediacy and what have you done for me lately? Now listen, if the, the most logical situation would have been if they would have sneaked the ball twice, third and one, fourth and one, they would have scored, made it a one touchdown game, Ravens would have gotten the ball back and they would have run the clock out. Niners would use their three timeouts. Ravens would have run the clock out. It would have been a 33 to 26 final at best. But given the narratives that people push and what people want to say and how people want to hate on Brock and they're looking for any reason, I'm almost glad it didn't happen. And as I alluded to, listen, the Niners moved the ball on the Ravens. They outgained Baltimore 429 to 343, nearly... 90 yards more of offense. This was a defense of the Ravens allowing 285 a game. The Niners still went over 400 on them. They passed for 308. Um, They're only allowing 242 a game. And they rushed for... uh, I'm sorry, they, they passed for 308. Lamar only threw for 242. They ran the ball for 121 with a much better average than the Ravens who ran for 102 on 26 carries. And that was with... Lamar's 30-yard run, and McCaffrey did have a big run in there as well. But they held the Ravens' running game down, and the Ravens were leaning on that. 26 carries isn't a small number. 18 carries is, and the game got away from, from San Francisco and Shanahan. Although in the beginning of the game, if you were watching the game and you felt like me, even though they were moving the ball in the air, where was McCaffrey or Mason on the ground those first two drives? Almost non-existent. You know, you look at Lamar's 30-yard run, you take that away, 25 rushes for 72 yards. That's three yards a carry. The running backs went 19 for 57. That's three yards a carry. These are just numbers. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the, the end result. But if people want to take, you know, for your emotionally fragile people out there, if you want to take something out of it, the Niners, it's not like the Niners were held under 250 yards of offense. It's not like the Ravens beat them up. I mean, they did. Some of the Niner players are injured, and we're going to get into that in a second. Niners move the ball. Niners move the ball. And if you want to say it was garbage time when Darnold scored a touchdown and they drove again and they didn't get it when it was 33 to 19, that's not garbage time. That's game is still in the balance. And if the Niners score, they have three timeouts and are playing to get the ball back again. So I don't believe that any of this stuff was garbage time. Did the Ravens maybe call some stuff a little bit differently when they got up by 21? Okay. Niners still had to execute. Ravens still had, you know, abilities to break up passes or or limit the Niners, you know, from any big gains, especially to Brandon Ayuk, who I had in both my fantasy teams. So thank you, Brandon, for getting me a victory and I'm in the championship game in both leagues. But, but what does this game mean? Here's five, if you want to call it, takeaways on what this game means. And the first one I just talked about, the Niners move the ball well on a top-ranked defense. 429 yards against the Ravens is nothing to sneeze at. And this is even when the, the Ravens knew the Niners were passing, when the game got out, got away from them from 14 to 21, and they still move the ball. Number two, the Niners are like any other team in the league. You can't win when you lose the turnover battle that significantly. When you are 0-5, in turnover differential, you are not going to win a game. Protecting the ball for any team during any game, but especially two evenly matched teams, is of utmost importance. Number three, this you know the Niners could stop the run when they really dedicate resources and scheme to it. They stopped Baltimore's running game, a hundred and what? What did I say? Hundred and two yards on twenty six carries. This was a team that was averaging one eighty a game. And it's not like 
Lamar had such a great game passing, and, and he, had, he had a good game, but people are fawning over what Lamar did. He had a good game, and he probably is going to win the MVP, but you know what he's got on the year? He's got 19 touchdowns and 7 interceptions. That's basically one of Troy Aikman's best season in the, in the 90s with the Cowboys. One, he's got one season of over 20 touchdown passes. And yes, Lamar adds some stuff on the ground. I get it. But this is not even remotely close statistically to Lamar's MVP season of 2019. So we could slow our roll on that a little bit, but he probably will get it. What else does it mean? It means the Niners are still the number one seed. They had a one-game cushion with the Seahawks beating the Eagles. They're still the one seed. They just now need to win the next two at Washington and at home against the Rams. Two winnable games. And what's the last thing this means? It means Purdy's not going to win MVP. Nor should he deserve to on nationally nationally televised game throwing four interceptions. The way that this is such a week-to-week league in terms of even MVP, it's making it feel like the Heisman. You can't have a bad game, a singular bad game, and win the Heisman. And Purdy had an awful game. I'm not sugarcoating it. But he still has thrown for 10 more touchdowns than Lamar Jackson. Threw for four more interceptions than it was all against the Ravens. And I know Purdy doesn't add anything on the ground. But to me, not because I'm a Niner fan, it should be McCaffrey. McCaffrey is having a dynamic year. He's going to go over 2,000 all-purpose yards. If he hasn't already, I should know the answer to that. I apologize. He's going to go over 2,000 all-purpose yards. 20, 21 touchdowns. He's going to have maybe more in the next two games. What Lamar's doing is is very good, very impressive. And yet, you know, it's going to go to the best player on the best team. And at this point, the Ravens are going to have the best record in the league probably when all is said and done. But is he having that good of a year when you compare it to like Mahomes putting up 50 touchdowns, some of Peyton Manning's years, uh, Tom Brady's years, or his own MVP year? It's not close. It really isn't. Now, some other stats and and record things um, to take away from the game. So Purdy went over 4,000 yards. He's at 4,050. The first time a 49er quarterback went over 2,000 since Jeff Garcia in the year 2000. He had 4,278 yards. Young also did it in 1993 and 1998. So he's the third quarterback in Niner history, and it's the fourth time in history a 4,000-yard passer, and he needs 229 yards the next two games to break the 49ers' single-season record. I'm really only counting it after the Commanders game because Garcia did it in 16 games. If Purdy gets a 17th game, that's completely skewing things. Unless you want to look at, you know, yards per game. That might be a better indicator as long as you play like maybe 14, 15 games. And McCaffrey has reached 500 career receptions faster than any other running back in history. And he's been in the league since 2017. So 17, 18, 19, 20, 22, 23, seven years. He's averaging basically 70 receptions, 70 receptions a year for a running back. Crazy. So injuries, the offensive line, first and foremost, Trent Williams went out with a groin strain. He was going to have an MRI Tuesday. It'll be revealed in Shanahan's press conference later today, the severity. Aaron Banks, left guard, went out. Looks like he re-aggravated his turf toe injury. We'll see how long he's out for. And Jalen Moore came in as a backup tackle and went out and he, with a concussion, and he's going to be in concussion protocol. So what did that mean? It meant left guard was manned by Ben Barch. Um, John Feliciano was at right guard. Once these three injuries happened, Colton McKivitz was your left tackle. Ben Barch was your left guard. Jake Brendel stayed in at center, Feliciano at right guard, and then Spencer Buford moved to right tackle. Uh, As of this recording, not sure of the injury severity of any of the players, but we'll know more as the week goes on. Before the game, the Niners released offensive backup offensive tackle Matt Pryor. Oops, I guess they didn't know, and it wouldn't matter the outcome of the game, right? But they didn't realize that the O-line was going to be in tatters by, you know, mid-fourth quarter and or beginning of the fourth quarter. We'll see if they can bring him back to the practice squad or the active roster. The practice squad, they would have to make some sort of a move because you could only have so many players, a certain number of players with, I think, more than three years of experience. And Matt Pryor is in his 30s, early 30s. 
The Niners waived wide receiver Willie Sneed. There's a possibility that they could bring him back to the practice squad. They released defensive lineman Taylor Stallworth from the practice squad, who they signed uh, a couple days before the game, did not get any snaps in. And the big signing, if you want to call it that, yesterday they signed defensive tackle Sebastian Joseph Day, formerly of the LA Chargers, who was waived Went through waivers because no one wanted to pick up the contract. He signed a three-year, $24 million contract in 2022, moving from the Rams to the Chargers, so staying in Los Angeles. But now this signing, one-year deal, does this actually mean that Eric Armstead's injury is worse than either announced or it's it's healing more slowly than anticipated? Because remember, it's Hargrave was hurt. He played, and he played well. Armstead out, Kalia Davis on injured reserve. They did bring up um, T.Y. McGill from the practice squad, but Sebastian Joseph Day is a starting caliber defensive tackle. At worst, he's going to get, you know, maybe 15 to 22 snaps per game as a a rotational defensive tackle. It'll probably be Kinlaw and Hargrave starting with Givens and Joseph Day as the backups, and and who knows if they're going to call up T.Y. McGill again. But something to keep an eye on what Eric Armstead's injury is. And and Kyle Shanahan has come out and said it's more the foot than the knee. And Armstead has been dealing with plantar fasciitis for the past couple years. That might be something that needs to get resolved in the offseason through surgery. Only so much can be done with rest. And if he does come back and play, he's going to have to play through some discomfort. That is a very uncomfortable slash painful injury. But some defensive tackle depth on a team that right now needs more offensive line help possibly given three starting linemen injuries or three injuries overall to linemen um, than what they have defensive, defensive tackle wise. And they played really well against Baltimore's run again, allowing less than four yards a carry. Um, But reinforcements coming in Niners like to build from the trenches out. They have the D line almost under control. The O line we'll see how the injuries shake out in the coming days. But that leads us into our 49ers Commanders preview. One o'clock on Sunday on Fox, not nationally televised. The Niners are a 13 and a half point favorite. It was just announced earlier today that Sam Howell is being benched in favor of quarterback Jacoby Brissett. Staying on the offensive side of the ball, you have running back Brian Robinson, receivers um, McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and Jahan Dotson. Against the Jets, let's go back to Jacoby Brissett. Howell got benched, had a really bad performance. He was like 6 of 20. Prisette comes in, goes 10 of 13 for 100 yards and a touchdown and makes the game interesting at the end. Defensively, the commanders are led by their two strong defensive tackles, Jonathan Allen and Deron Payne. They also have cornerback Kendall Fuller. As a team, 38 sacks. However, 11 and a half sacks are from two players, not on the team anymore, Montez Sweat and Chase Young. So this is a team that has generated 26 and a half sacks from the players on the current roster and only seven interceptions garnered on the year. Where they rank as an offense overall, they are 19th, 16th passing, averaging 229 a game, 22nd rushing, averaging 99 a game, and 23rd in points scored, averaging 20.6 points per game. Defensively, they are worst overall 32nd. They are 31st against the pass, allowing 262 a game, 23rd against the run, allowing 123, and last in points allowed, allowing 30.2 points a game. Turnover differential, Niners took a step down. They were plus 13 going into the Ravens game. Now they're plus 8. Washington is minus 10. So what are the big questions here? Well, we know the first one. How's Purdy going to bounce back? How's he going to bounce back from his worst performance as a professional and college quarterback? He seems to be someone that has his head on straight. I think he's someone like cornerbacks that has a short memory. He's going to come out gunning, but it'll be interesting how Shanahan draws up the playbook to start the game, we saw really no runs or hardly any runs the first two drives with a lot of passing. We'll see if he gets McCaffrey and if it's Eli Mitchell, if he's healthy, or Jordan Mason. Well, hey, he won't get him involved in the first quarter. We know how this works, but see if he's going to get running backs involved as part of the offensive game plan for the first 
two, at least two drives against Washington. What is the offensive line going to look like? There's the real possibility if Jalen Moore passes concussion protocol that your line looks like from left to right, Jalen Moore, Ben Barch, Jake Brendel, John Feliciano, and Colton McKivitz. And now the right side of your line is the strength, which is a scary thought, not the left. Do they bring Matt Pryor back? If Jalen Moore doesn't clear concussion protocol and uh, Trent Williams is hurt, does Matt Pryor become the starting left or right tackle? Who are the three backups going to be? They may pull up someone from the practice squad, whether it's an ill Manning. um, uh, You know, they have three three other offensive linemen on the practice squad that they could pull up. But the O-line... Now, this is a game, too, that the Niners, if there's anything going on with Trent Williams, they may decide to rest him... Because they may think the Commanders game is winnable without him. The Commanders no longer have Montez Sweat or Chase Young. So that pass rush <coughs> should not be as much of a concern as it is against the Ra- as it was against the Ravens, who got to quarterbacks four times, but they do have the most sacks in the league. The Commanders basically have half of what the, the Ravens have. So the O-line is in flux. Shanahan committing to the run. That is the the... Will he commit to the run? As I just mentioned, that is Washington's strength up the middle. Doesn't mean you don't do it. And a lot of the runs, there are some cutback runs that McCaffrey takes to the inside, but there is the outside zone that they can run as well. Sweeps with Debo. Um, They shouldn't get away from the run here at all. I mean, this should be at least a 25, at least a 25 rushes type of game against the worst defense in the league. Second worst pass, bottom third rush. I think unless the Niners fall apart and or don't take this seriously, and I think after an ass kicking by Baltimore, and George Kittles had a quote after the game saying something like, listen, this is CNFL. It's the way the ball bounces. You know, we got our butts kicked. We can either sit and dwell, excuse me, sit and dwell on it, or we go out there and try to kick someone's ass next. I think that's what the mentality is is going to be Jacoby Brissett is going to be an upgrade at quarterback over Sam Howell, at least from a steady hand maturity and probably protecting the ball standpoint. But I don't see the weapons. Now, Brian Robinson is a big, strong back. Terry McLaurin's having a down year. I know this because I have him on both of my fantasy teams and I haven't started him in probably a month. Curtis Samuel and Jahan Dotson are, Good number two and number three options. Ambry Thomas, I think, went out with a hamstring injury for the Niners. So the cornerback rotation, do they keep Lenore inside? They they played Jason Verrett. They played Daryl Luter some. They had Samuel Womack inactive. So they have the bodies. It's just a matter of what that starting three is going to look like and who are going to be the two backups if Thomas can't go. But I think... You know, looking at these teams, these rosters, uh, their teams headed in different directions. I mean, Washington, Ron Rivera is, is probably going to be fired as the head coach. He fired Jack Del Rio as the defensive coordinator uh, about a month ago. Things have gotten worse, not better. Washington looks like they're just playing out the string, but they want to play spoilers. Why not? Why not? But I think this is a game San Francisco wins. It's going to be right around that 13 and a half point point spread. I have San Francisco 30 to 16 getting the win and setting up a very interesting game week 18 against the Rams. So that concludes the 49er section of the podcast. Stick around. We're going to be talking in the plus section, NBA, the Detroit Pistons losing 27 straight games, Zach Snyder's Rebel Moon Review, and week 17 NFL picks. Stay right here. It's plus time. So for those of you following the NBA, or if you haven't been following the NBA, this will be more interesting to you. The Detroit Pistons have lost 27 straight games. It is a new record for consecutive losses during a season. And the all-time record, I think, was by the 76ers, who lost 28 games over the course of two seasons. But 27 straight to Detroit... They were 2-1 to start the season, lost 27 consecutive after that. I'm recording this on Wednesday the 27th. Tomorrow night, Thursday the 28th, they're at Boston. So loss, that will set the uh, or tie the overall record. And then Saturday the 30th, they are at home against Toronto. So we'll see if they could put really an exclamation point 
get to 29 and maybe extend this into the 30s. Detroit's a bad team. And this is a team, when you look at their first-round picks from the, the past five years and free agency, they're, they're not getting a lot of help. So this past year, their first-round pick was Asura Thompson, number five overall, a forward from overtime elite, so not a college, kind of a semi-pro prep type of program for the draft. This year, he's averaging 9.5 points per game and 7.6 rebounds per game. Not great, but not first-round pick-worthy. 2022, their first-round pick was Jaden Ivory, number five again overall point guard from Purdue. This year, he's averaging 12.4 points per game and 3.1 assists per game. Not bad. Okay. 2021 was really their best pick, Cade Cunningham, the number one overall pick point guard out of Oklahoma State. This year, he's averaging 23 points a game and seven assists per game. Great. But when you look at 20, 21, and 22, and we're going to get to 2020, not that you have to question what the Pistons are doing, but in 2020, they drafted Killian Hayes, number seven overall point guard from France. He's averaging 9.1 points per game and 4.4 assists per game this season. Three straight point guard selections. Now, you can mix and match in today's NBA, who could play point guard, who could play point forward, shooting guards, point guards, it, it is interchangeable. So they wanted more scoring on the court. They certainly got it in Kate Cunningham. Ivy, not great or not terrible either, but Thompson and Hayes remains to be seen. And their 2019 pick, Sekou Dombia, number 15 overall, was a power forward from France. He was with the, season, with the Pistons for two seasons and now is basically out of the league. And he was averaging 5.6 points per game and 2.8 rebounds per game. This is a team the Pistons, that has a proud history. They won back-to-back -back finals in 88-89 and 89-90. They won the championship again in 03 or in 04. But in their last 16 seasons, they've had one winning season, one season where they were 41 and 41, and three playoff appearances. Three playoff appearances in the last 16 seasons. This is why, when you look at their first-round picks, and you can see how much a first-round pick does not really impact your team. Look at, look at Victor Wambayama uh, for the Spurs. In time, that he can make the Spurs relevant again, but they are not. And four straight first-round picks at either the number seven spot, the number five spot, twice or the number one spot, has the, the Pistons, along with their free agent halls, which haven't been fantastic, as a... 2-28 and 28 team. This is why teams have that F-them-picks mentality, and they'll trade multiple first-round picks for an established star when that star represents 20% of your team on the court at any given time. There's something with certain towns and being bad. Detroit, Cleveland... Minnesota. Now, the Lions are having a resurgent year under Dan Campbell, and good for them. But they have one playoff win in the Super Bowl era. They just won the NFC North. It's their first division title since 93, 30 years. And in hockey, the Red Wings, which has been historically a very proud and good franchise, have not been in the playoffs in the past seven seasons. For the Browns, 10-5 and five this year, having a good season. But they've made the playoffs just three times in the past 31 years. Never been to a Super Bowl like the Lions. The Cleveland Guardians in baseball have been to the playoffs seven times in the last 20 years. Never won a World Series. And the Cavaliers are abysmal unless they have LeBron James on the, on the court. So you need to have like an all-time top three player in a sport for Cleveland to be a relevant destination football or basketball-wise. And I said the Vikings. Now, the Vikings have always been about a middling team, right? They, they've made the playoffs eight times in the last 21 years. They haven't had a Super Bowl appearance since 1976. The Minnesota Wild, we want to talk about hockey, 13 playoffs in 21 years. They made a conference final in, 20, in 02 or 03, but no Stanley Cup appearances. 
And lastly, the Twins, they won the World Series in 91, but they've made 10 playoff appearances in the past 30 years. I didn't get into the Timberwolves. I mean, they're because they've had a little bit of a resurgence, but again, beyond Kevin Garnett, who's again, an all-time great player, not a very good franchise. Now, what do these, these cities kind of have in common? We'll leave Minnesota out for the time being. When you think of maybe... I don't want to say some of the worst, but the worst, the ugliest, um, downtrodden type of cities, cities you would never vacation to and and cities where you would never want to live. Detroit and Cleveland probably top the list, right? Cleveland is nicknamed the mistake by the lake. Detroit, other than Eminem and Barry Sanders, like what, what have they, and, and, Ford Motor Company, they really haven't contributed a whole lot to the country. And they're not desirable locations. Minnesota, Minneapolis, <laughs> from what I hear, is a beautiful city. But you're at, you know, the one of the most northern points in the country. You have to deal with cold weather and snow a lot. But at least a little bit more of an attractive place to play. It's tough to get people to want to play in Detroit or Cleveland. It's tough. I mean... Not as much of a, of a state tax or income tax type of thing as maybe like a New York or a Florida, I'm sorry, or California. That's why Florida and Texas are so appealing to a lot of players. But these are gray, dreary, grimy cities. Um, violence problems, crime, just places that are just, you know, want to play in Miami, want to play in even New York, anywhere in Texas. California, Midwest, like Oklahoma City, even small market, but fun college-ish town. Cleveland and Detroit, tough draws. And and the Pistons have not gotten lucky in the draft so far. They're a terrible team. The the only way that they're going to get someone relevant is someone at the tail end of, of their career that thinks they're worth more than they are. And the Pistons decide, or the Cavaliers even, decide to spend money on them just to say that they have some sort of a star in the building. But it's it's a shame. Now, is it laughable what the Pistons are going through? Yes, but it's got to be tough on the players, the coaching staff, the fans. Um, but I, I do honestly maintain that these are two sports towns, great sports towns, right? Great sports towns. The Tigers, I know they were in a World Series uh, maybe 15 or so years ago. But I do believe geography has something to do with how historically overall these are just cities that forget championships, but just have difficulty being competitive year in and year out. So now let's switch from sports in general to movies. So Zack Snyder's rebel moon was released a few days ago on Netflix. It's a Netflix exclusive It is a, right now, a two-part movie, but there are some rumblings that there might be a third part. I really hope he does not put, quote-unquote, fans through that. On the interesting side, it cost $166 million for Netflix to make both movies. So if you divide that out, $83 million a movie. Not terrible at all, you know, this day and age of what it costs to make theatrical releases. But it's Netflix that is not gaining advertising revenue per se, specifically on Rebel Moon, right? I mean, there is an ad tier on Netflix. I'm not sure how much that generates Netflix per year. I may look at that at the end of the year just to see what, you know, Netflix um, produced from their ad tier stream. But it's a movie that, I don't want to say it's all sunk cost. Maybe there's action figures. I don't know. There's actually a novel Based on this, and I was on Reddit, and people are reading the novel saying, oh, you know, the novel's better than the book. There's stuff that was cut out. What kind of loser do you have to be to read a novel based on a movie that's even either sci-fi or fantasy? I still understand what the market is for that. Like, even the novelizations of Star Wars movies. Why would you read that? And I'm a Star Wars nerd. The novel, any novel is generally better than a movie because you can use your own imagination. There's more that's generally cut out for a movie. Um, but I, I don't understand the time or monetary commitment, no matter how big of a Zack Snyder fan you are. Why the hell are you reading rebel moon? The novel 
it, it, it just odds me. Now, you know, I'm sure you know the story about this. This, this was something that Zack Snyder pitched to Lucasfilm in 2012, right around the time of the acquisition by Disney as an R-rated Star Wars movie. Thankfully, George Lucas said no to it. The plot revolves around a female farmer. Her name is Korra, whose planet is under is going to be under attack by the Imperium. Even after the Imperium demands a whole lot of food, a whole lot of wheat from this farming village, farming world, and she recruits other warriors from other planets to help protect her planet from the Imperium. Broad strokes, that's the plot. Now, the main planet in this Imperium is called Motherworld, which is a take on the motherland, what Germany used to be called, and maybe Germany still is called that, but during, you know, World War II. And, of course, the bad guys look like German Nazis, wearing... Nazi-like hats, wearing ties, thin black ties, which you would think in another galaxy, maybe there's another type of fashion accessory other than a tie that military people would use, but, you know, no one claimed Zack Snyder was a wildly original person. Listen, there are people out there that like this movie. Again, I've been on Reddit, I've been on Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, I've read the reviews. There are people that really like this movie. They're simpletons. There are people that hate this movie. I think that's going a little too far. This movie was okay. It was the definition of average, mediocre, if you're one of the younger, hip people, mid. Two out of four stars. And look, I understand now how hard it is, or how hard it has to be to make something original in sci-fi and fantasy. Because everything is going to remind you of something that's that's come before it. And this movie has been likened to Star Wars, uh, Warhammer, 4K, and even at the end, it reminded me of The Matrix, significantly. And there were signs, you know, Star Wars, you know, starts out on, with a farmer. Luke was a moisture farmer, Korra is an actual farmer. It starts with a a scene from the original Star Wars where the Star Destroyer is coming ahead on top of you after the credits roll. This, their dreadnought is coming from the side. So it even opens up the same way as A New Hope. There's a bar slash cantina scene where our main hero gets kind of threatened and, and attacked by someone like Luke was in the Mos Eisley Cantina before Obi-Wan cut his arm off, cut that person's arm off. There is a pilot that they find at that cantina to help them pick up other warriors, like Luke and Obi-Wan finding Han Solo and Chewie. So no one is reaching for comparisons to Star Wars. They're there, and even one of the characters has glowing swords that kind of look like lightsabers, but she's the only one that has it. It's not like multiple people kind of have this weapon. If you want to call it an homage because it started as a a pitch to Lucasfilm for a Star Wars movie, okay. But it's really blatant and it shows some unoriginality that it's going to be so obvious to so many people that it feels like a knockoff of other movies. Now, there were some things I liked. The creature designs were interesting. I'm not sure if they were practical. Some were maybe practical effects. Some might have been CGI. Um, But the the creatures looked pretty good. They really did look pretty good. And some of the action scenes were well choreographed and entertaining. And I also liked how the guns, if you want to call it blasters, that both sides were using, good guys and bad guys, when it made contact with something, it was almost as if you were they were shooting like lava out at someone else. It would hit a wall or something, and it wouldn't just burn and disappear. It would almost like splash. And I thought that was a cool effect. Unfortunately, the good is not nearly as plentiful as the bad. And to me, you know, the CGI at times looked really bad. I know some things are either, you know, matte painting backgrounds or green screen, but there were times where it just looked really bad. The dialogue is terrible. 
Again, this is a story by Zack Snyder. I'm not sure if he had screenwriting credits or, or who else wrote it with him. Dialogue was bad. This was a movie that tried so desperately to feel epic, but failed each and every time because one of the main culprits was Zack Snyder using way too much slow motion. So unnecessarily. It's a, it's a Snyder staple, much like making things dark and using palettes and browns and grays, dreary, washed out. And he was his own cinematographer for this movie, in, in addition to being a director. I don't think that helped matters. The characters. The characters rarely don't really interact with anybody. I didn't, with each other. I didn't care about any one of them. I don't remember the names of any character other than the main character, Korra. I can see them in my head. I don't even know the fate of what happened to the Han Solo type character. I'm not going to give anything away for this movie. I went back after, right after the movie, I'm like, what happened to that character? Did he get killed? Did he like, I have, I don't know. And part of me doesn't even care, but nothing memorable about the characters and these characters are gathered one at a time. They meet the Han Solo type character in the bar. Then they fly to get, I forget even the order, um, a prince who's being held on like a farm that had to uh, tame like this big eagle creature. Um, they had to get a, a general from a war, um, an Asian character with the lightsaber swords who was battling a big spider. It just felt like, okay, we're going to go here and pick this person up. We're going to go here and pick this person up. Let's pick that person. It, it just it felt very, very disjointed. And the overall story to me is illogical. Cora, the main character, I'm not going to give away who she is or anything for those of you that want to watch it. It's nothing spectacular. It's whatever. But is, is rounding up these people to protect her planet so essentially the, the bad guys come, they say, we got to, you know, you have to supply us with all the food and we're going to come back in nine months for all the food. And it's way more food that this planet could produce. So she wants to fight back and she needs other people to fight back also. So she has nine months to assemble like a team to protect her planet. Fine. But the rationale is in nine months, this one spaceship, this one dreadnought comes back and is going to get its food, and that's when they're going to fight and rebel. They seem to think that if they defeat this one big ship, which, based on who they've brought, there's just no way. <laughs> Even with the people that they gathered at full strength, and some of these people die along the way, they, they have no chance. But if somehow they defeat this big dreadnought, they think, okay, we just defeated the Imperium, they're going to leave us alone. Are you serious? If this Imperium gets defeated by this farmer planet, don't you think they're going to bring back half a dozen, a dozen ships and just bombard the Christ out of that planet, which they've done to other planets before? It was, and I, listen, I get it. You want to defend yourself. and But to think that you would win if you defeat that one ship was the height of stupidity. Didn't make sense. This is a story, though, that would have worked better as a series. That instead of a two hour and 15 minute movie, maybe this first part is four hour long episodes. And maybe the next part, part two, which is coming out in April, is another four hour long episodes. It would have made the gathering of the uh, rebels, if you want to call it that, would have made more sense. The first episode, maybe you introduce what's going on. Second episode, you get a person or two. The third episode, you get a person or two. And the fourth episode, obviously, how this movie ends is how it would end on a little bit of a cliffhanger type of thing. There's a director's cut coming out early in the new year, January, February. Of course there is. It's a Zack Snyder movie. Of course you can't create a movie adequately in two and a half hours that you have to show everybody, here's what's on the cutting room floor. Here's my three, three and a half hour, three hours and 15 minute cut that'll make everything make more sense. If you can't construct, and it's not a standalone movie because there's two parts, but if you can't construct part one of your movie in a coherent standalone way and you're reliant on a director's cut to fill in the blanks, then you failed as a filmmaker. And Snyder got that green light from Netflix of, all right, you got to make us 
a two hour ish PG 13 cut. And then you can have your R rated three hour cut to come out later on. And that's apparently what the novel is. The novel's based on the director's cut, which the Zack Snyder fanboys are all saying, oh, I can't wait till the director's cut. If it's like the book, it's going to make so much more sense. If you can't have your movie make sense in more than two hours, you are not doing something right. Then you're just overindulging in bullshit. You could have trimmed all the slow-mo out and you might've got a couple more minutes to tell some story or have some character interaction or have some character growth. There is no character growth aside from maybe the main character, maybe in part one, or I will doubt in part two as well, which I mentioned is coming out, <coughs> I think mid April of 2024. Will I watch the director's cut? Sure. Cause I'm always looking for something to watch. Now this is not going to be, you know, like the Zack Snyder justice league director's cut. It was all done already, and they're probably just putting some maybe finishing touches on the director's cut or giving at least part one room to breathe before part two comes out in April. But the Zack Snyder Justice League cut was done for a couple reasons. One, because he had a fatality in his family. His, I think, daughter died, and he had to step away from the movie directing, and Joss Whedon came in. So it did change what Zack Snyder wanted to do. And he was able through Warner Brothers and HBO to finish his cut of the movie. But how smart are the people at HBO giving him it? They gave him an extra $70 million to create his director's cut like two years after Justice League came out. Talk about throwing good money after bad. At least this is all being done at the same time. I'll watch the director's cut. I'll watch part two in April just to see how it turns out. There better not be a part three. I don't think this is a universe that is fertile enough to uh, spawn anything else, a prequel or anything else going on. It's run-of-the-mill science fiction. It is what you would get if you watched a sci-fi original movie on the Sci-Fi Channel. No better, no worse. It just has the Snyder stylistic flair where either you like it as a fan or you don't, but it's, it's hollow. It is a very, very pretty package wrapped for Christmas with nothing in it, but that's Zack Snyder and he's made a career on that and he's rich. So good for him. Now let's conclude making week 17 NFL picks. It starts off Thursday night, the Jets at the Browns. I don't know if it's going to be Simeon or Wilson starting for the Browns, but Joe Flacco is making the Browns very, very, very relevant at 10 and 5, and that Browns D is going to tee off on the Jets. Give me Cleveland. Saturday, Detroit at Dallas, a battle of um, 11 and 4 teams. Dallas is at home, so they will win that game. New England at Buffalo. Bills will trounce the Patriots. Atlanta at Chicago. Atlanta still fighting for a wild card or quite possibly the NFC South. But I think the Bears will win at Soldier Field. The Raiders, after their very impressive win against the Chiefs, where they didn't throw the ball at all in the second half, are at Indianapolis. I think the Raiders will open up the game plan a bit for this one, but I will take the Colts. The Rams at the Giants. It is going to be... Tyrod Taylor, more than likely at quarterback. Uh, the Rams are doing enough good things on both sides of the ball that I believe they will get the victory, unless there's inclement weather, which could throw everything off. Arizona at Philadelphia. The Eagles will get the win. New Orleans at Tampa Bay. Baker Mayfield stringing together another really good game. They will beat the Saints in almost, I, I don't know if they, with, with that win, would they clinch the NFC South, but they're getting very close to it. I took the Niners over the Commanders. Carolina at Jacksonville. Trevor Lawrence may not play that game. He has a sprain of his AC joint, his shoulder joint of his right shoulder. So it could be CJ Beathard, but either way, they will beat Carolina. Miami at Baltimore. The Dolphins might be without Jalen Waddell, who has a high ankle sprain. This could be a letdown game for the Ravens after they what they did on Christmas night, but I will take them to beat Miami, and if they win, they do clinch the number one seed in the AFC. Tennessee at Houston. Tennessee was game against Seattle, but fell. Houston is going to have C.J. Stroud back, still in the thick of the wildcard chase. They will beat the Titans. 
Pittsburgh at Seattle. Both teams fighting for a wild card. Right now, Seattle, I think, is in. Pittsburgh is not. This is in Seattle. It's going to be Mason Rudolph's second or first start of the season because he came in. Did he come in in relief last game? I'm not sure, but he's going to be playing again. But I think the Seahawks will win. The Chargers at the Broncos. It was recently revealed that Russell Wilson is going to be benched for Jarrett Stidham. And some of that has to do with the fact that if Russell Wilson cannot pass a physical on March 1st, he is guaranteed another $37 million on top of the $39 million he's already guaranteed. Broncos offense did not look good at all against the Patriots. Half of this is trying to get a spark, and half of it is let's put Russell Wilson on bubble wraps and we get rid of him in the offseason. We don't owe him another $37 million. The Bengals at the Chiefs. The Chiefs looked all sorts of bad and all sorts of out of sorts, but I do think they will do enough to get the win against Jake Browning. And the Bengals, not sure if Jamar Chase will be back for that one. And the Sunday night game, Green Bay at Minnesota. Uh, I think the Packers will do enough at Minnesota to get the win and get their record to 8-8, eight and eight, still holding on to hope of getting either that 6 or 7 wild card seed. And that concludes the plus section and the 49ers Plus podcast for today. As always, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy routine to make us part of uh, your listening day. Um, between now and then there will be new year's Eve, new year's day. Everyone stay, uh, safe, no matter what you're doing, staying in, going to a party, driving, don't drink and drive. Everybody be safe. I hope everybody, I should have led the podcast. This had a very happy, Merry Christmas and holidays, uh, with their family. If they did celebrate and obviously with new year's coming up, like always, everyone stay happy healthy and safe. The next podcast will drop either Tuesday or Wednesday. We will talk soon. Take care.